Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 69. Today's big Bible question, what does God look like, and what does his presence look and sound like? Happy Monday, friends. Hope you're all washing your hands, not touching your face, and most importantly, starting your day with the Word of God. I want to genuinely thank you for joining us for the Bible Reading Podcast. I want to point you to our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. On that site, you can find all the show notes and basically a transcription of each podcast episode. So if something is said or a verse is read that you want to look up later, just go to BibleReadingPodcast.com and go to the episode that you are wondering about and you should see it there. I want to invite you to leave us a review on iTunes to share this episode in particular on social media. So here's the thing. This one might be a long one, but of all the episodes I've ever done, this might be my favorite, especially the research of it. There are some absolutely amazing scriptures we're going to read through today. I'm excited about it. This is worth your listen, not because I have some great insights for you, but we've gathered some great scriptures for you that are really, I think, for the vast majority of Christians, going to be deeply eye-opening, really, really edifying in the faith, and will give us an understanding of the appearance of God and the appearance of uh, all what's all around Him in a way that I think most Christians haven't understood. And it's all going to be out of the Bible. You're not going to get really any of my opinion on this stuff, and nor would you want it. It's not that valuable. So today's readings include Exodus chapter 20, all about the Ten Commandments, Job 38, God speaks to Job out of the whirlwind, Luke 23, the crucifixion of Jesus, and 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Though we aren't focusing on 2 Corinthians today, one of the deepest and richest and most beautiful of all the verses in Scripture is right there in the middle of chapter 8, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention it because it is a beautiful picture of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Rejoice, friends, that is the good news. Jesus exchanged perfect life in heaven so that he could come to the earth and suffer and die for us, so that by his poverty, his suffering, we might become rich. We might become children of God. Bless his name. Our focus passages today will be both Exodus and Job, because both are applicable to the big Bible question of the day. And let me say this up front. Our question isn't exactly fair because the Bible doesn't fully describe the appearance of God much at all, but it does often describe his surroundings, and that will be the primary focus of the first part of the podcast. But believe it or not, there is quite a good bit of information on the appearance of God, and we'll get to that in some of the scriptures we're going to read towards the end of today. So let's consider Job 38, first of all. All of a sudden, Elihu finishes his three or four chapter speech and God is on the scene and he's ready 
to call Job and his friends to account for the wor- their words. Surprisingly, as we'll see, God is in a whirlwind. Job 38.1, Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. That's a very strange passage when you read it. It's strange for its suddenness, I suppose, and strange for the fact that, you know, God is in a whirlwind. We're given absolutely zero introduction or context here. Job and his friends don't look up and see a storm forming in the distance or anything like that. Just all of a sudden, God is there and he's speaking out of the whirlwind. The Hebrew word used here for whirlwind is the word sa'ar, and it means tempest or storm or hurricane or whirlwind. And I suppose the very American word tornado would be in the semantic range of the world as well. Now, that is an interesting word in talking about the appearance of God because it occurs more than once when God is on the scene. For instance, in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1 says, The time had come for the Lord to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind. And verse 11 says, As they continued talking and walking, a chariot of fire with horses of fire suddenly appeared and separated the two of them, Elijah and Elisha. Then Elijah went up into heaven in the sa'ar, or in the whirlwind. That's 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 and verse 11. It's also the same word used in Jonah for the storm that God sent to turn Jonah back from Tarshish to Nineveh. That was a Sa'ar. And also in Zechariah 9, where Zechariah 9, I think verse 14 says, Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will fly like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and advance with the southern Sa'ar, or the southern whirlwind. I believe it's fair to say here, and we're going to see it some more in a minute, there's a strong association between God and the whirlwind. He also speaks out of it later in a couple of chapters of Job. Do most people picture God's presence as manifesting in a storm in a whirlwind? Perhaps not, but here we are. God sometimes, at least, abides in the whirlwind. But... Not always. Consider Elijah's encounter with God in 1 Kings chapter 19, which is one of my very favorite Bible passages. 1 Kings 19 verse 9, Suddenly the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Verse 11, Then he said, God said to him, Go out and stand on the mountain in the Lord's presence. At that moment the Lord passed by. A great and mighty wind was tearing at the mountains and was shattering the cliffs before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake there was a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire... There was a voice, a soft whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? So God was not in the storm here, not in the fire, not in the earthquake, but in the soft whisper. That's fascinating. It's beautiful. It's a little unsettling, but I think it's unsettling in a good sort of way. So let's turn to our Exodus passage, Exodus 20, our reading of the day. How does God appear in Exodus? 
verse 18 says, All the people, the Israelites who were on the Exodus, witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountains surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. Moses responded to the people, Don't be afraid, for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and you will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. Now, there are a few verses in the Bible that just give me chills. The first Kings 19 passage we just read with Elijah is one. Revelation chapter 12, there was war in heaven is another. Matthew 7, 23, when Jesus says, I never knew you, depart from me, you lawbreakers, is a third. And there's many more, but Exodus twenty twenty one is absolutely in the mix as far as the most chilling Bible verse there is. Moses approached the Arafel, or the thick darkness, the gross darkness, the total darkness. God is here, dwelling in a mountain, surrounded by lightning, thunder, thick smoke, fire, and a terrifyingly loud trumpet sound. Just picturing what the Israelites might have seen in my mind's eye is enough to produce at least of the a little bit of the shuddering they felt. And remember from yesterday, Exodus nineteen sixteen said, On the third day when morning came, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. Do you understand how terrifying this vision was for these people of God, the Israelites? They said to Moses, don't you let God talk to us. You talk to God, and you tell us what he says, because if he talks to us, we will die. They didn't want to see him. They didn't want to go up to where he was. They didn't want to hear his voice because what they were seeing, to be fair to them, they weren't being just cowards. What they were seeing is terrifying. So, so far, we've seen that God can inhabit total darkness, surrounded by fiery and smoky storms. He can inhabit a calm and gentle whisper, and he can inhabit a whirlwind. That's pretty fascinating, but we're really only just getting started. Isaiah saw a picture of the Lord. You've probably heard this passage before. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, or is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. There's not a big description of God himself here, but we do see him on a high and lofty throne, and he is wearing a robe with a long train or him, which is fairly interesting. So it's reasonable to believe that when God appears to humans, he's wearing some kind of clothing. 
Now, we're going to learn some more about the appearance of God in Exodus 24. Verse 9, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of Israel's elders, and they saw the God of Israel. Beneath his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, as clear as the sky itself. God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him, and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay there, so that I may give you the stone tablets with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua and went up the mountain of God. He told the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. Aaron and Hur are here with you. Whoever has a dispute should go to them. When Moses went up the mountain, the cloud covered it. The glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. On the seventh day, he called to Moses from the cloud. The appearance of the Lord's glory to the Israelites was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. I note here that lapis lazuli is fairly important, apparently, in the appearance of God, because Ezekiel also sees God on a throne, and that throne is made out of lapis lazuli, as he describes in Ezekiel chapter 10. Now, lapis lazuli, if you haven't seen it, It's this incredibly beautiful, deep blue rock. I've got a picture of it on the BibleReadingPodcast.com page. You ought to come look at it. It's deep blue with streaks of gold in it. Now, it's not transparent, and the description we just read sort of indicates this lapis lazuli is. And so, does that mean it's a special kind of godly lapis lazuli that's more of a transparent, translucent sort of crystal, or is that pointing us more in the direction of sapphire? And the answer is we don't really know. The Romans didn't know about sapphires, but it's possible the Jews did. At either rate, we're probably talking about a beautiful blue sort of stone. Also, God has feet or at least uh, his appearance can manifest with feet. As well, as verse 17 shows us, God can also appear as if he is a consuming fire, or if he is dwelling in a consuming fire. Honestly, it's likely both, because Hebrews 12.29 tells us, very simply, our God is a consuming fire. So I realize so far that we've not really seen a very detailed description of the appearance of God himself yet. And as we're going to find out in a minute, there's a really good reason for that. But believe it or not, the Bible does give us a good bit more about the appearance of God than we've seen so far. And let's keep diving into these passages, beginning with Exodus 34 and 35, verse 13 of Exodus 34. God is having a conversation with Moses, and Moses says, Now, if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways, and I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Now, consider this nation is your people. He's talking about Israel. And God replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said, If your presence does not go, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. The Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Please let me see your glory. 
God said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name, the Lord, before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But, he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. So in verse 35, we see what happens here. Moses cut two, I said, I'm sorry, chapter 35, verse 4. Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He got up early in the morning and taking the two stone tablets in his hand, he climbed Mount Sinai just as the Lord had commanded him. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. But he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And Moses immediately knelt low on the ground in worship. So what do we see here? Well, most importantly, because appearance is not the important thing, we learn the character of God. He's compassionate. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. And he's abounding in my favorite Hebrew word, chesed, faithful love. He's abounding in faithful love. Punishing sin also, holy, maintaining love to a thousand generations. Praise his name. By the way, that's good news for you and I listening for us living, you know, thousands of years after Moses. God is still maintaining his love to us because we've not yet exhausted a thousand generations since Moses. Two other things we learn here. First, we learn that no human can see God face to face and live. That's very important, and it means that we will not have a full description of God in the Bible, in particular, not his face. Second, we see God dwelling in the clouds again. That's also important. And maybe it's perhaps worth remembering, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he ascended into the clouds. When he returns, he will return on the clouds of heaven, says Matthew twenty six sixty four. There's a very, very strong associating in scripture between God and clouds. So just a few more passages to go. I know this is going long, but I hope you are, I don't know, at least half as fascinated with this as I am. Because if you're half as fascinated, you're dialed in. Because this is fascinating to me. So a few more descriptions of God in the Bible that give us a little more information on what he might look like. So let's begin with Daniel chapter 7. Verse 9, as I kept watching, thrones were set in place, says Daniel, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like the whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire, its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him, ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. So thus far, 
This is our most detailed description of God. His clothing is white as snow. He's seated on a throne of flaming fire with wheels of flaming fire. And his hair on his head was like the whitest wool. So God has a head. He has hair. He has feet. Further, we see a river of fire coming out from the presence of God. Now, most people probably associate fire with Satan, and cartoons and such like to depict Satan ruling a fiery hell. But honestly, in the Bible, fire purifies, and God himself is often seen in the midst of fire. And he sometimes appears as fire. I can't think of a, a single instance of Satan appearing in fire in the Bible, except at the very end when he's tossed into it. Because the thing is, Satan doesn't rule from hell. He's not there yet. When he is sent to hell, it won't be to rule. It'll be to suffer. Our next picture of God comes from Ezekiel and you better buckle your seatbelts if they're not buckled already, because it's pretty remarkable. This is Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 3. The word of the Lord came directly to the priest Ezekiel, son of Bootsi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kabar Canal. The Lord's hand was on him there. And Ezekiel says, I looked, and there was a whirlwind uh -huh, coming from the north, a huge cloud with fire cloud, fire, flashing back and forth and brilliant light all around it. In the center of the fire, there was a gleam like amber. Remember all of that. Amber, brilliant light, fire, cloud. The likeness of four living creatures came from it, and this was their appearance. They looked something like a human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Skip a bit down to verse 13. The likeness of the living creatures was like the appearance of blazing coals of fire or like torches. Fire was moving back and forth between the living creatures. It was bright with lightning huh, coming out of it. The creatures were darting back and forth like flashes of lightning. Skip down to verse 25. A voice came from the expanse over their heads. When they stopped, they lowered their wings. Something like a throne with the appearance of lapis lazuli was above the expanse over their heads. On the throne, high above, was someone who looked like a human. From what seemed to be his waist up, I saw a gleam like amber with what looked like fire enclosing it all around. From what seemed to be his waist down, I also saw what looked like fire. There was a brilliant light all around him. The appearance of the brilliant light all around was like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard a voice speaking. So, did you see it or did you hear it? Another whirlwind, fire, clouds, lightning, and more lapis lazuli. And yes, our clearest description of the appearance of God that we've seen yet, or at least the likeness of his glory. He looked human, but he gleams like amber. Fire enclosed his upper torso and his lower torso, and there was a brilliant rainbow-like light all around God. Now, this is a fascinating picture we're beginning to see. One more passage, and maybe a bonus one. 
Both of them are going to be from the book of Revelation. This is from Revelation chapter 4, and I'm also going to throw in a bit from Revelation chapter 8. But first, Revelation Revelation 4 verses 1 through 6. John writes, After this I looked, and there in heaven was an open door. The first voice that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and there was a throne in heaven, and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone or a sardius, as some translations say. A rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the throne sat twenty-four elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven Fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Something like a sea of glass, similar to crystal, was also before the throne. And we'll skip over to Revelation 8, verses 2 through 4. Then I saw seven the seven angels who stand in the presence of God. Seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel with a golden incense burner came and stood at the altar. He was given a large amount of incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up in the presence of God from the angel's hand. So I wanted to include that so that we would know that there's a golden altar in the throne room of God. What an absolutely awe-inspiring picture we are given in the book of Revelation of the wonder and majesty of God. Notice the trumpets, the same kind we heard back in Exodus. The lightning, the thunder, the fiery torches in the presence of God. The sea of glass or crystal or something like that in front of the throne. Rainbow light, perhaps tinted green like an emerald shining around the throne. And God himself, the Ancient of Days, with an appearance like a jasper stone and a sardius or a carnelian stone. There's a good amount of discussion as to what exactly John intended here, but my best guess is reddish crystals that sort of swirl with other colors as pictured on our website. And I know you have to go look at it, but man, you really should. You really should go there because you'll see two amazing pictures of polished jasper and a polished carnelian stone. And if you've never seen these stones, they're amazing looking, sort of like a fire opal. They're very fiery in appearance, especially the uh, picture of the polished jasper stone I have there on BibleReadingPodcast.com. They're really, really remarkable stones to see. I sort of want one, but then that's actually kind of weird, I realize. But just go look and see what we're talking about here. They're mostly red, orange, fiery in appearance, with some swirls of white and, yes, some swirls of green. Okay, so let's try and put it all together. God often appears in the context of what we would call a storm. Obviously not a regular storm, a storm with swirling 
whirlwinds, a storm with lightning and thunder and uh, perhaps voices like trumpets coming out of it. But not just that, because there's also fire and smoke and some sort of, of darkness. And it's just a fascinating picture. And not only the darkness, because there's also this incredible rainbow type light, maybe like an emerald rainbow type light that emanates all around the presence of God. And what does God himself look like? Well, he gleams like amber. And amber is a really beautiful thing if you've never seen it. Sort of an, a good way to describe it is sort of like a polished carnelian stone or like a jasper, sort of a reddish orange honey-like appearance. That's not doing it justice, but you can see how the amber would fit with the jasper stone and the carnelian stone. Maybe an orange-red fiery sort of look with beautiful white, whitest hair and a robe and clothes and feet and a head. What does his face look like? We have no idea and it's a good thing. We don't because that is not for us to see, at least not now. In heaven, we will see him as he is. We're not able to handle it now. Even Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, when he had this vision of God that he had, it made him overwhelmed and sick and was troubling, even though it was obviously encouraging. His physical body just could not take the sight of God. John had a similar reaction. He could not take what he saw. And that's where we're going to finish up. One last description of God to discuss. And I wonder, have you ever considered what Jesus, the Son of God and God himself, actually looks like now? Do you think maybe he looks still like a human? Uh, But I don't think so. I think he looks different. And the reason I think that is because... We have a description in Revelation chapter 1 and also partially Revelation 19. We have a description of what Jesus looks like now. And I will close this part of the podcast and we'll move into our scripture reading. I mean, we've already been reading a lot. We've got some more to read. Uh, With Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. This is what John, maybe Jesus' best human friend on earth, This is how John described Jesus. Notice how similar it is to the description we see of God in the Old Testament and the description we're going to see of God in Revelation chapter 4. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet, saying, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, this is Jesus, dressed in a robe and with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was as white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is 
fired in a furnace, and his voice sounded like the cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And honestly, I guess uh, beyond that, my friends, words fail. I hope this was encouraging to you on the deepest level possible, because I got to tell you, it was encouraging to me. Now we're going to read through our four chapters in succession, starting with Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for their father's iniquity to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands." Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You are to labor six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female servant, your livestock or the resident alien who is within your city gates. For the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and everything in them in six days. Then he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and declared it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. All the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain surrounded by smoke. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. You speak to us and we will listen, they said to Moses, but don't don't let God speak to us or we will die. Moses responded to the people, don't be afraid for God has come to test you so that you will fear him and will not sin. And the people remained standing at a distance as Moses approached the total darkness where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, This is what you are to say to the Israelites. You have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make gods of silver to rival me. Do not make gods of gold for yourselves. Make an earthen altar for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your flocks and herds. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. If you make a stone altar for me, do not build it out of cut stones. If you use your chisel on it, you will defile it. Do not go up to my altar on steps so that your nakedness is not exposed on it. Job 38 verse 1 Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. He said, Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. 
When I question you, you will inform me. Where were you when I established the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? What supports its foundations, or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who enclosed the sea behind doors when it burst from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and total darkness its blanket? When I determined its boundaries and put its bars and doors in place, when I declared, you may come up this far, but no farther, your proud waves stop here. Have you ever in your life commanded the morning or assigned the dawn its place so it may seize the edges of the earth and shake the wicked out of it? The earth is changed as clay is by a seal. Its hills stand out like the folds of a garment. Light is withheld from the wicked and the arm raised in violence is broken. Have you traveled to the sources of the sea or walked in the depths of the oceans? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the extent of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Where is the road to the home of light? Do you know where darkness lives so you can lead it back to its border? Are you familiar with the paths to its home? Don't you know? You were already born. You've lived so long. Have you entered the place where the snow is stored? Or have you seen the storehouses of hail, which I hold in reserve for times of trouble, for the day of warfare and battle? What road leads to the place where light is dispersed? Where is the source of the east wind that spreads across the earth? Who cuts a channel for the flooding rain or clears the way for lightning to bring rain on an uninhabited land, on a desert with no human life to satisfy the parched wasteland and cause the grass to sprout? Does the rain have a father? Who fathered the drops of dew? Whose womb did the ice come from? Who gave birth to the frost of heaven, when water becomes as hard as stone, and the surface of the watery depths is frozen? Can you fasten the chains of the Pleiades, or loosen the belt of Orion? Can you bring out the constellations in their season, and lead the bear and her cubs? Do you know the laws of heaven? Can you impose its authority on earth? Can you command the clouds so that a flood of water covers you? Can you send out lightning bolts and they go? Do they report to you, here we are? Who put wisdom in your heart or gave you the mind of understanding? Who has the wisdom to number the clouds? Or who can tilt the water jars of heaven when the dust hardens like cast metal and the clods of dirt stick together? Can you hunt prey for a lioness or satisfy the appetite of young lions when they crouch in their dens and lie in wait within their lairs? Who provides the raven's food when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Luke 23 verse 1 Then the whole assembly arose up and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. Pilate then told the chief priests in the crowds, I find no grounds for charging this man. 
but they kept insisting. He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee where he started even to here. When Pilate heard this, he asked if the man was a Galilean. Finding that he was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod who was also in Jerusalem during those days. Herod was very glad to see Jesus for a long time. He wanted to see him because he'd heard about him and was hoping to see some miracle performed by him. So he kept asking him questions, but Jesus did not answer him. The chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him. Then Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing, and sent him back to Pilate. That very day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Previously, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people, and said to them, You have brought me this man as one who misleads the people, but in fact, after examining him in your presence, I have found no grounds to charge this man with those things you accuse him of. Neither has Herod, because he sent him back to us. Clearly, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will have him whipped and release him. Then they all cried out together, Take this man away! Release Barabbas to us! He had been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed the crowd again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time he said to them, Why, what has this man done wrong? I've found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. But they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and released the one they were asking for, who had been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder. But... He handed over Jesus to their will. As they led him away, they seized Simon, a Cyrenian who was coming in from the country, and laid the cross on him to carry behind Jesus. A large crowd of people followed him, including women who were mourning and lamenting him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. Look, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the women without children, the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, because they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots. The people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself. If this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was hung above him. This is the king of the Jews. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, Don't you even fear God, since you are undergoing the same punishment? We are punished justly, because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And he said to him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. Saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. There was a good and righteous man named Joseph, a member of the Sanhedrin, who had not agreed with their plan and action. He was from Arimathea, a Judean town, and was looking forward to the kingdom of God. He approached Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Taking it down, he wrapped it in fine linen and placed it in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever been placed. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed along and observed the tomb and how his body was placed. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Second Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1 We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. During a severe trial that was brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that, according to their ability, and even beyond their ability, of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints, and not just as we had hoped, instead they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So we urged Titus that just as he had begun, so he should also complete among you this act of grace. Now as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. I'm not saying this is a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I'm testing the genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter I am giving you advice because it's profitable for you, who began last year not only to do something, but also to want to do it. Now finish the task, so that just as there was an eager desire, there may also be a completion according to what you have. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. It is not that there should be relief for others and hardship for you, but it is a question of equality. At the present time, your surplus is available for their need, so that their abundance may in turn meet your need in order that there may be equality. As it is written, the person who had much did not have too much, and the person who had little did not have too little. Thanks be to God, who put the same concern for you into the heart of Titus. He welcomed our appeal and, being very diligent, went out to you by his own choice. We have sent with him the brother who is praised among all the churches for his gospel ministry. And not only that, but he was also appointed by the churches to accompany us with this gracious gift that we are administrating for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We're taking this precaution so that no one will criticize us 
us about this large sum that we are administering. Indeed, we are giving careful thought to do what is right, not only before the Lord, but also before people. We have also sent with him our brother. We have often tested him in many circumstances and founded him to be diligent, and now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and co-worker for you. As for your brothers, they are the messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show them proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you. Well, brothers and sisters, this has been a long one. I hope the word of God has been deeply encouraging to you. It has to me. Tomorrow much shorter. And maybe the next day too. We'll try to make up for it later on. For now, thank you for listening to the Bible Reading Podcast. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Godspeed to you.